1 Corinthians 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you could find that on page 955 and 956 of that copy of the Scripture. Man, I do love that song. I love praying with you that, um, that God would show us Christ. And it really is the aim of ministry of a gathering like this for all of us uh, to confess, and this is no light thing, to confess that Jesus is Lord. Do we even know what it means that Jesus is Lord, that He is our King, our owner? And we want Him, we want to know that Jesus is Lord of every dimension of our lives. Now, as we come to this topic, as uh, Pastor Brad said a little earlier, the top, uh, topic of singleness, it very much does intersect with the Lordship of Jesus Christ as we will uh, see momentarily. And just to give you some context here, a few weeks ago, uh, in, we're, we were working our way through a series in the book of Genesis, uh, intending to go from chapter 1 to chapter 11, and we hit chapter 2 and verse 24, and that verse says, For this reason a man will leave his mother and father and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh, meaning one social unit. So I preached two sermons on marriage, and then for Mother's Day I preached a sermon on family, and uh, so it's kind of branched out into a mini-series on marriage and family, and I really wanted to end that series with a sermon on singleness. Uh, that is uh, a, a, a sermon about adults who are unmarried and what that is from the perspective of Scripture. And I thought I probably need to uh, explain why uh, we should have a sermon devoted to that topic uh, and a few reasons that I want to give you uh, just at the outset. And the first one is that there is a growing percentage of single American adults. So if you look at the statistics, back in 1960, uh, the average, the, the median age at which uh, men were married was 23, and for women it was 20. Um, I was talking with uh, Gordon Bolt at the pre-service prayer meeting, and he said, well, that's about right. He said, I was, he said, I was 19 when I was got married, and Lillian was four. Uh, and so, yeah, that, they, they might throw off the median just a little bit. Um, but, but then, so fast forward to 2021, the, the most recent statistic I could find, and the median marri marrying age for men is 30 and for women is 28. In, two in 1960, one out of every 10 American adults, uh, uh, one out of every 10 was single. Fast forward to today, and it's four out of 10. Um, and the, so those are some statistics, but, but then on top of that, uh, you have this, this reality that, and this is just not, this is not numbers or statistics, but this is just more anecdotal, more anecdotal evidence that uh, churches seem to be a little awkward at relating to single adults. I was reading a book written by a, a single man on the topic of singleness, seven myths about singleness, and he said that singleness tends to be a conversational cul-de-sac in a church. It's kind of like the dead end of a conversation, then pretty much you're, uh, you're trying to desperately figure out something else to talk about. And uh, of all places, a church should be a place in which everyone is not just welcomed superficially, but embraced and, and uh, incorporated and included. And it's especially odd uh, because the author and finisher of our faith was a single man. And the, the foremost uh, Christian theologian, the author of most of the letters in our New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul was a single man. And why churches then are awkward about uh, single adults is, is a little bit of a, of a mystery. Um, the other, another reason, a third reason is why to deal with this topic is because the Bible talks about this topic. 
And, and the reason why I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 7 is because this quite naturally is our go-to passage on this, the topic of singleness, and the section that Pastor Brad read is, uh, really succinctly explains some of the thoughts behind that. We're going to explain some more in, ju- in just a moment. But th- the final reason, the fourth, I guess I would say defense as to why I'm preaching an entire sermon on the topic of singleness, is because the underlying reason that makes singleness a struggle for many people is, a, is, is also a struggle for everybody. And that is the thought that if only my circumstances were a little different, I'd be more successful or happier or more of a person or more accepted. If only I had gotten that job or only if I had been included into that, that academic prog- program or only if I'd taken that opportunity or only if things were different, then I would be You see, there's an underlying struggle that we all share that I think can make singleness challenge, especially in our culture. And so what I'm going to do here, and I'm just going to walk us through in three steps, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about this, why it teaches it, and then how we could put it into practice or how we could apply the Bible's teaching, okay? So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about singleness, um, and this applies, I'll, I'll give you, before we get into this, this applies to um, anyone who's unmarried. Uh, there are children in this, in this auditorium, in, in the audience, who are unmarried. There are adults who are unmarried. There are those who are uh, unmarried because of circumstances, unmarried because of divorce, unmarried because of separation. And... I was talking with someone earlier this, this morning, and she was sharing with me that she, she thought about the fact that unless she and her husband die at the exact same time, she one day will be single again, and that is true for all of us who are married. It's not a very cheery thought to think about, but that is the reality. And so it behooves all of us to understand what the Bible says about this topic. So first of all, what does the Bible teach? And I said the go-to passage for us is 1 Corinthians 7, but there are some challenging things about this chapter especially, and I'll point out one of, those, one of these to you and explain it to you. Um, so look at you, if you look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, to the married I give this charge, and then in parentheses it says, not I but the Lord. So yeah, that's fine, he's saying Jesus is giving this charge and Paul is repeating it. But if you skip to verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. So what is Paul saying? He's saying like, this isn't really what Jesus said, this is just what I said. How am I supposed to take what he says next? What what Paul is doing here is he's referring to specific things Jesus taught about marriage that we have recorded in the Gospels. What Paul is doing in verse 12 and beyond, he's saying saying this. Now, this is not drawing from a specific teaching of Jesus that we find written in the Gospels, but this is a particular application of what Jesus has taught that is, now that it's in our Bibles, no less inspired than what Jesus has said, just to be clear that we all understand what's going on with that. But beyond that, there are some things about the context that we should know. Paul is writing to people in the city of Corinth who, like us, are trying to navigate life in a fallen world in which now Jesus is our King. Trying to navigate life 
in a world in which Jesus is ushered in because of his death and resurrection, a new way of being, a new way of living, because now he owns us, we belong to him. He's the one who has rescued us from sin and will one day rescue us from death. And we're living in this, this new age in which Jesus has opened up to us a new way of living. And so what does this mean to live this way? What does this mean that we belong to Christ? What does it mean that one day, anytime, Jesus is going to return and renovate this fallen world? What does this all mean? And so they wrote Paul a letter and they asked him different questions. And one of the questions they asked him was this, Paul, uh, because Jesus owns us and because he's our king and because he could come anytime, uh, we probably shouldn't get married, right? Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the matters of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you, if you have in front of you a new international version of the Bible, I think it renders it, it's good for a person not to get married. That's the implication there. And, he, and he, they're saying, it's, it's probably good not to get married, right? And you know what Paul says? He says, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. So, what is he saying here? Well, Paul, what the Bible teaches, and what Paul teaches, I'm going to show you in a moment, is that both marriage and singleness are equally valid ways of following Jesus. Both marriage and singleness are equally valid ways of following Jesus. Now, throughout this chapter, we see very clearly that marriage is a valid path for following Jesus. He says in verse 2, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It's, it's almost as if we have plenty of reasons why marriage is a valid way of following Jesus, the ones that we looked at uh, three and four weeks ago. And from the book of Ephesians, marriage is a way of showcasing the relentless unqualified love that God has for His people that, that a man and woman should enjoy with one another in a marriage relationship. That, that certainly validates marriage as a way of, of following Jesus. But the reason Paul gives here is somewhat surprising. He says people have certain urges, people have, certain, have, have sexual desires, and that is a legitimate part of what it means to be married. And so marriage is, being married is a, is a perfectly valid path for following Jesus, getting married, but then also in verse, in beginning in verse 10, staying married is a, is a valid way of following Jesus. The, the, the thought here was this, there's a, a woman, she trusts Jesus Christ as her Savior, she realizes that she owes, she know, owes nothing to anyone except Jesus Christ alone. Well, she's married to an unbeliever. Well, what should I do? I have an entirely new life. Should I separate this? Should I cut off this relationship? Should I, should I divorce this man? After all, I should owe no one, nothing to anyone else except Jesus because he's my only Lord. And Paul says, no, it's perfectly, you can follow Jesus and stay married to this person. You see what kind of questions these people had. They, they took seriously the radical, comprehensive claims of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, oh, it, it's, it's valid to get married. It's valid to stay married as a Christian. But now, here's what is surprising for us. He says this too. Singleness is a valid path for following Jesus. Uh, look at verses uh, 7. Uh, well, look, look at verse 8 of... Uh, chapter 7. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is, Paul is saying this, I have such ability to focus on serving Jesus, 
and we'll look at reasons a little later on. I have such ability to focus on serving Jesus. I, I, I wish that everyone could have that kind of freedom too. Which, which is, would have been shocking in Paul's day to say that singleness is an equally valid way of following Jesus. Uh, in, in verse 26, look at chapter 7, verse 26, he says, I, I think that in view of the present distress, it is a good for a person to remain as he is. See, in addition to the fact that the Corinthian Christians, like you and I, were wrestling with the question of what does it look like to follow Jesus now, they had a unique circumstance that Paul refers to as a present distress. There was something coming on the horizon for the Corinthians, probably some kind of persecution in which it probably wasn't the best time to get married and start a family. So Paul is saying, you know what, it, it probably would be prudent for you if you're engaged to postpone the wedding and that is a perfectly valid thing to do because singleness is a perfectly valid way of following Jesus. There are some circumstances, Paul was saying, which it probably is not, is not uh, advised to get married. But then he goes on to say, but, in verse 26, if you do marry, you haven't sinned. So it's perfectly valid to postpone your wedding and view it of present distress. But if, if you don't, if you go ahead and get married, that's fine too. Now, his singleness, he says, is such a valid way of following Jesus that his rationale, Paul's rationale, for commending it is that it allows someone, someone's interests to be undivided and focused to serve the Lord. And this was the passage that was read to you earlier in their service. I want you to be free from anxiety, verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, for us, it seems maybe odd or at least puzzling that Paul would say marriage is a valid way of following Jesus and singleness is a valid, uh, valid way of following Jesus. But in Paul's day, this was utterly countercultural. Why? Because your worth and value very much was tied not just in your, in your marital status, but in your having children. I mean, the, the, uh, for a Christian to be unmarried meant celibacy, not having sex, and not having kids. And in Paul's day, that was unthinkable. How can you be? How can you be a flourishing human being and not have these experiences? How can you be a full, a full human being and not have, have children? This is, this is crazy. You know, it's, it was as crazy in Paul's day for someone to say, that you can be a perfectly flourishing human being and not have, find security in your offspring, in passing on your legacy to children, as it is in our day for someone to be a perfectly flourishing human being and a virgin. In a, in a culture that elevates uh, sexual intimacy and romance to such a high degree that says, can you even be a person unless you've had these experiences? And, and the Christian view says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Now, 
whether, whether because the culture elevates having children or whether the culture elevates having sex, we tend not to see singleness as a viable option for being a flourishing human being. That's, why, that's what makes this so countercultural. Now, why, how, I mean, maybe you should ask, why? Why can the Christian faith make such an audacious claim? This doesn't make sense. Why, why is it that the Christian faith presents as Jesus himself, the, perfect, the only perfect human being ever, who ever walked this earth, walked this earth as a single man? How does, how does Christianity validate this? Why, why does the Bible teach this? This is the second, the second point. We see what the Bible teaches, and, and uh, the bottom line is this. Both marriage and singleness are equally valid ways of following Jesus. Why does the Bible teach this? Well, here's the reason. The death and resurrection of Christ has opened up such a new way of being for humans so that what truly matters about a person is not whether he or she is married, nor whether he or she has children, nor whether she or he or she has romantic experiences, but what matters about a person is whether he or she belongs to King Jesus. That is the central claim of Christianity that goes back to the very meaning of the gospel. You are saved not by your marital status. You're saved not by the fact that you have offspring. You're saved not by the depth of experience that you've had. You're saved by grace through faith because of Jesus Christ. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus opens up to us a new way of being such, as the most, such that the most important thing about you is not what you have or who you're related to or who you're married to or what experience you ha- experiences you have. The most important thing about you is who owns you who you belong to. That's why the, Paul's reasoning is, is bracketed by two key statements that we find, one in chapter 6 and verse ni- uh, uh, 20, the end of the previous chapter, and the other one uh, later on in chapter 7, verse 23. So if you look at chapter 6 and verse, uh, I'll start in verse 19, it says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't have the pressure now to sustain your own identity because you belong to someone, and the someone to whom you belong says uh, how valuable you are. How valuable are you? You're this valuable. He died. He gave us life for you. And we find the same thing then in verse 23 of chapter 7. You were bought with a price. Don't you know how valuable you are? Don't you know who you belong to? You are this valuable. God gave us life to redeem you, and you belong to Him. That's the central claim of the Christian faith. And that's why Paul can say, being single is is a perfectly valid way of following Jesus being married is a perfectly valid way of following Jesus in Paul's culture as in our culture. That's, it's utterly countercultural. It doesn't even make sense unless you know this about the Christian faith. There is a time factor here. That I want to point out there's a time factor as well. There's an ownership factor. I should have said that earlier, but there's a time factor, and that is this. Because of who we belong to, Because we've been bought with a price, because Jesus is returning, that puts everything in life into a different perspective. 
So now, the reasons for getting married and begetting children in Paul's day, that is, to sustain a legacy. That is, so I could actually have significance. That's not why you're getting married and having children anymore. Or to refrain from getting married and having children. That's not why I'm doing it anymore. Not to gain significance for myself, because I already have it. I already know I've been bought with a price. I already know who I belong to. That, that's what is behind what Paul's admittedly somewhat puzzling on first glance uh, words when he says in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Men, you shouldn't point to this passage and say, this is an excuse for me to pretend I'm not married. That's not what this is saying. Let those who have wives live as if they have none. He's saying the reasons people go into marriage, that is to gain significance or a legacy, those aren't your reasons. He says the time has grown short. In other words, we are living in a day in which any time Jesus can appear. Now, when that will be, we don't know. But we can put it like this. You know when you're watching, if you've ever gotten this early, this, the, up this early to see the sunrise, has anybody done that? You've seen the sunrise before? Some of you didn't know that the sun came up gradually. You just thought it like, appeared, in the, appeared in the sky. It really does. It comes up gradually. But before it rises, sometimes the sky turns this, this brilliant pink. You can't see the disk of the sun yet, but you know it's going to appear. But the sky is that pre-dawn pink. This is what the world is like for us as Christians. The, the sky is, is, is pink. The sky is, is saying, it's any time now. It could be a thousand years from now. It could be 10 days from now. It could be this afternoon. Je at some point, Jesus is going to appear. Therefore, all the things that you're doing, you're not, you're not doing so that you can gain worth for yourself or value yourself or a, a, a legacy for, for yourself. You're doing it for King Jesus. It relativizes all of our values. Now, the, the teaching that the Bible presents here in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, and elsewhere in Scripture that marriage and singleness are equally valid paths for following Jesus, it, I want to give a, I gave the reason, and that is that the most important thing about a person is not what he or she, she has achieved, who he or she is married to, or the experiences he or she have had, but the most important thing about a person is whom they belong to, right? That's the reason. But I want to give a caveat, a little, just a, a little a little uh, qualification here. And that is, it doesn't mean that marriage and singleness are equally easy paths. They're equally valid, but they're not equally easy necessarily. In Paul's day, Paul is saying, in, because, of the, because of the coming distress, he says, because of this present distress, in Paul's day, he's saying, marriage is going to be the harder path. And he's saying, because of what's coming, I'm just saying, it might be, it probably would be easier for you if you went ahead and postponed your wedding and, and, and waited to get married because, because if you do, it's just a hard time to get married and start a family. And so Paul is saying, I really wish, I wish everybody could be like me because as a single man, I can be undivided in, in, in serving the Lord. So th th this is, this is in, in this context, it was that singleness, according in, from Paul's perspective, because of his experiences and his recommendation to 
in that, in that historical circumstances would have been the path less complicated. But in some circumstances, singleness might be the more challenging path. In some cases, marriage might be the more challenging path. But both marriage and singleness have unique ways of declaring the glory and goodness of what it means to belong to Christ. I'll say that again. Both marriage and singleness have unique ways of declaring the glory and goodness of what it means to belong to Christ. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about marriage and how it, marriage can uniquely declare the uh, the glories of Christ, and then singleness, how that singleness can u- uniquely declare the glories of Christ. Um, uh, marriage, and, and this is, uh, it, it bears repeating, but it's something that we've talked about in the past couple of weeks with Christian marriage, and that is that marriage can uniquely display the love of God. In, by, by two people coming together and, and promising to each other their undying love for one another, their exclusive commitment, and, and that is a way in which God's covenant faithfulness can be declared, and that, puts, that, that gives God the glory. If, if a marriage is blessed with children, that can have a unique way of declaring the goodness of what it means to belong to Christ. And I, I think just as a side note here, because, because marriage in Paul's day, as is ours, is often associated with uh, having children, not in all cases, but, but in many cases, it's possible for people to come into a marriage relationship or even Christians and say, I don't know if, or, or at least say, um, I don't know if it's good, good to have children. What kind of world am I bringing my children into? And there could be a kind of concern that Oh my goodness, look at this. Look at how bad this world is. Look at how dark it is. Is it really good to be bringing children into a world such as ours? Well, what are we going to do then? Just die out? Are we going to say that darkness has won? Or will we join with Christ and say with Him, Take heart, I have overcome the world. You see... Raising children and deploying them as agents of light in a dark world is a fearless way of declaring that you refuse to believe that God has abandoned this world. See, to, to raise children, I know this is a message on singleness, not on parenting, but I, I wanna, I, I'm going to compare and contrast the unique ways in which marriage and singleness can declare the glories of Christ, but, but parenting as it relates to the, the, the future of this world is a way of declaring, God, there is hope for this world because of Christ. There is hope for this world because of Christ. I don't think that God has abandoned this world, and there's no need for me to think that uh, for, for, for my children. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and God is still overturning darkness and shining, uh, shining light into this world. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So be fruitful and multiply. See, see marriage, and, and if God blesses a, a marriage with, with children, can be a way, way of declaring the, God's faithfulness and the glories of Christ. But singleness can too. Singleness can declare hope in God just as forcefully 
Embracing singleness is a radical act of faith because it declares that my final hope is not in romance, not in begetting children, but my final hope is in Christ. And so together, married people and unmarried people can join their voices together and blend in a harmonious song displaying the glories of Christ in unique ways. So that is the rationale. That is Scripture's reason, the Christianity's reason for saying both marriage and singleness are equally valid ways of following Jesus. It's countercultural, radically countercultural, but it points to the fact that what matters most about a person is that that person belongs to Christ. Now, third, how, how do you put this to practice? That's kind of the theory, right? That's all that's just we need to get that in our heads for theory, but what do you, how do you put that into practice? Well, you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses people in different social categories, to the unmarried and widows, and, and then here's to everybody else, and, and I'll do the same, okay? So what does this look like for single people? And the category is almost too broad to, uh, to take the time to, to parse out because, as I said earlier, there are those who are single by choice, there are those who are single by circumstance, people who are single by death or by divorce. But I want to point out to you something that Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He refers to singleness as a gift. Now, that, that really does kind of fly in the face of what the, the way a lot of people tend to think about it. To see this as a kind of punishment or a thought that, oh, I, I must not be doing something right, or if I were more mature, or if I learned con more contentment. Not all of God's gifts come in shining wrapping paper. And, and some people say, well, I don't think I have the gift of, of singleness. The question is, are you single and are you a Christian? If so, it's God's gift to you now. What do you do, what do you do with a gift from God? Well, first, you thank God for it. And then you ask how God wants you to use it. Paul, Paul didn't say, well, I guess I have no sexual desire. I guess I don't really like being around people. I really have no desire to be a family, so I guess I have the gift of singleness. No. no Paul, Paul viewed his singleness as a gift from God. And so this is the case with any, this is not just singleness, but this is the case with any circumstance you find yourself in. What considering my circumstances and what, what is unique about this that allows me to uniquely serve God? What is true about my stage in life that, that, that allows me to serve God in this way? This is true whether you are a single person, whether you are, um, have, have young children, there are unique pressures to having young children, whether your children are, are 
teenagers or leaving the home, whether your children are uh, of adult children, uh, whether you're a grandparent, each stage of life, relationally, when it comes to families, they come with their unique pressures. How can I, in this stage of life, as it is right now, see it as God's gift to me, thank Him for it, and use it for His glory? That's what you do with God's gifts. And the second point, and this is, this is mostly maybe for those who are of single and of marriageable age, who consider this to be uh, a gift that they, ex- they are glad to have for the time being, but might be glad to give up if God's providence would so lead. I think this point in uh, chapter, seven, in v- chapter 7, verse 21, Paul is, well, actually, begin in verse 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. What Paul is doing here is he's speaking to the tendency for people to believe that my circumstance in life bars me from serving God like I really want to serve God. So I'm a Jew right now. Oh, should I change my Jewishness to, to, to serve God more effectively? Or he says, was anyone at the time of his call, uncircumcised. Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. He says to bond servants, those who find themselves uh, owned by a master, were you a bond servant when called? Oh, if anything would cause someone to believe, well, I can't really serve Christ as king because I have, I, I've, I have a master that I'm supposed to obey. Paul says, actually, you can serve Jesus as your king and remain a bond servant. Now, on the other hand, he says in verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, this is not an excuse for apathy. If you can better your circumstance or if you have a desire to, to have a different circumstance, then by all means, Take, take the opportunity. I think the same could be said for those who at this time are unmarried, but would say, hey, if there's an opportunity, then seek it. This applies, for, this applies to, uh, to unma- people of, of marriageable age who would seek marriage or desire marriage. And just to, because we've been working our way through Genesis, uh, I, sh- I should probably say this is for maybe those young men of uh, a marriageable age or approaching marriageable age, the tendency can be to read um, a philosophy of courtship and dating into Genesis 2. You know how God put Adam to sleep um, before he met Eve, and, uh, and somehow this maybe can be an argument for com- being completely passive until God brings around the right person. That's not what that's teaching, and I, I'm sure that some of the young ladies will be very happy for me to clarify that. It's not teaching for men to be entirely passive in that process, but if you can, Paul says, if he says that to bond servants, would he not say that to single people of marriageable age to seek opportunities. Well, what about, and, more, and much more can be said, right, about this um, to those who are, are single, but what about the church as a whole? We as a church, and I think this is true of all, all churches, but we as a church especially, we need to see singleness as a gift too. If unmarried adults are supposed to see their singleness as a gift from God, are we supposed to see it as not as a gift from God for them? Does that somehow apply to them but not to us? I think there's a very unfortunate tendency, I think among well-meaning people, to view singleness as God's plan B for someone's life. And I think that that perspective that that 
honestly, it fails to take full account for this teaching, this passage, that, that according to the Bible, because of the gospel, singleness and marriage are equally valid ways of following Jesus. If you don't believe that, then it's going to betrayed, be betrayed in the well-intended but ultimately flawed approach you have to single people, like saying things like, well, if you just, just be patient and wait on the Lord, He'll bring the right person into your path as if they weren't living out God's will for their lives now. My friends, in our well-intentioned and I think biblically informed desire to elevate the importance of marriage in a culture in which marriage is constantly being, being disintegrated, we can easily go overboard and unwittingly disintegrate the value of singleness. But if we will take the Bible at face value and see what the Bible is teaching about this, we have to affirm the gift of singleness in, in other adults too. These are not children that have never just, just never grown up. These are, these are people that God is leading on a particular path of life that, that we ought to affirm. I think a, a bad or a no theology of singleness can be revealed in these kind of comments and can actually reveal a shaky understanding of the gospel of God's grace. That's, a, that's on the negative side, okay? That we have to be careful to affirm gift of singleness in all people and not betray a, a poor understanding of it by acting as if singleness is plan, God's plan B for someone's life. But positively, the church should be a place where single people, all people, are welcomed. This is one of the things we've been, we've been talking about. I think two weeks ago, I, I quoted this verse from Romans chapter 15, verse 7, where Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The church should not be a place in which people, just based on their marital status, feel somehow awkward or unwelcome, but it should be a place in which people feel just as welcome as you felt when you realized that God was opening His arms of embrace for you to come in just as you are. That's what the church ought to be. How did Christ welcome you? Unreservedly, without qualification, sacrificially. All right, that's how we ought to welcome one another. Of all places, of all places in the world, this ought to be the place where people find a family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, who are there for them inviting them, welcoming them, including them, embracing them. This, this is what the church ought to be. It's a fundamentally different kind of community. Why? Because it's informed by the gospel of grace that says that we're included not on the base of our, basis of our social standing or of our good works, but by the grace of God. That's what the church is. It's a place that's fundamentally informed by the gospel, and our actions and our relationships ought to reflect that. Now I know what's going to happen. Every non-married adult is going to get invited to dinner after the, the service and, and uh, all these invitations. There, right now, probably people are texting, texting different people and, and setting up lunch appointments. But we ought to be, we ought to be not just a superficially uh, inviting, uh, welcoming uh, community, but a deeply, a deeply uh, embracing community. But to all of us, and there's something that, that every, every single one of us needs to understand. Children, teenagers, Adults, married and unmarried, 
Do you have a tendency to believe that if only your circumstances were different, then things would be so much better? Why hasn't God given me that position I wanted? Why didn't God put me into a, a different family? Why did God take that person from me? If only it were back to where it was, or if only it were something that it's not, then, then I would feel complete. Then I would feel, feel satisfied. The question is, can you, serve, can you serve Jesus as your king now, or does it have to wait till something changes? And the answer that Paul gives is, it's now. It's now. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. That's why. You belong to Him. You, do you need to wait till something else is added to your life to get more value than what Jesus has already evaluated as, you as? What, what more could you add to this fact? I love you so much. I give my life for you. Can you add something else to that to make it weightier, more significant? No, you can't. So all of us need this. All of us need to embrace the gospel more deeply. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your marriage. Glorify God with your singleness. Glorify God with your childhood. Glorify God with your teenage years. Glorify God with your senior saints years, as Pastor Brad gave announcements about. Glorify God with everything you are. Why? Because you are His. And you are safe. What it means to belong to Jesus, it doesn't simply mean I have an owner. It means my owner is the one who secures and satisfies me and gives me true significance. And that's the Bible's teaching on singleness. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's think about this just a moment. We could do it quietly, our heads bowed, eyes closed, to have a just a silent moment. You know, there is so much more that could be said about this topic, and we haven't even scratched the surface, and I haven't given all the advice and things that could be said. There's only so much time. But what we have looked at is what the Bible teaches, and it presents to you an opportunity, a choice, as to whether you will embrace it or not. This is what this is the choice we all have. And maybe you didn't know that there was such a great Savior, or maybe you knew He was great, but you didn't know how great He was and how much it meant to, how much it means to belong to Him. Well, then you can take whatever you've been leaning on, whatever you've been hoping for in, that's not in Christ and, and realize that Christ fulfills that. and feast on the riches of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Our Father, I pray that you would draw our hearts and minds to Christ. We pray before this message, before this sermon, show us Christ, show us Christ. And Lord, we, we continue to long for that. And we hope to have seen Christ as more satisfying, more fulfilling um, now, as a result of this than we did before. And I pray that you continue to work that change in our hearts that needs to be done. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.